All right, we are kicking off a new series. Melissa referenced it a little bit that, you know, the, the team and I have called, decided to call Lost. I was at my mom's house yesterday. My mom um, watches online. Hi, Mom. Love you. Um, and she said, uh, what are you going to talk about in church now that Christmas is over? And I was sitting with the fam yesterday, and my, my uh, daughter Caroline was there, and I said, well, Mom, I said, we're going to start a new series called Lost. I said, and in the series, we're going to look at how in many ways we've lost the things that Jesus seemed to say were priorities of life. They were paramount in being able to actually live the kind of lives he, he thought we could have. Things like our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. And Caroline, as she often does, as only an encouraging pastor's kid could, said, wow, we went from the thrill of hope to lost? That's kind of depressing. <laughs> I said, thank you, sweetie. Um, but, you know, I reflected on it yesterday as I was thinking about the talk, and she's right. Like, it is, it, it can be kind of depressing. I mean, as a people, we talked about this over the last month, we should be known as people of hope. But oftentimes, as we saw graphically last week, and one of, one of my favorite um, kind of images was that picture of Israel just walking around in circles. We can become a people who've lost our way. Now, Jesus, if, if you know anything about the way Jesus preached, he kept things fairly simple so that people could understand them. And the rabbis at the time, the teachers of the day, they like to do anything but. They would like to make it as complex as possible and put heavy burdens and heavy weights on the shoulders of people. So one day they came to Jesus and they said, uh, Rabbi, because he was a teacher of the day, they said, Rabbi, um, there are many commands, um, over 600 of them. And depending on the rabbi you go to, he will tell you this is the most important or that's the most important. What saith you, Jesus? And Jesus says to them, well, here. He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Simple? Yes. Easy? Have you ever tried that? No. I mean, to begin with, right, in, in so many ways, so many of us have a hard time loving ourselves. We're disappointed in ourselves. We let our past define who we are as a people. We don't love ourselves much or forgive ourselves often. Uh, and because of that, it breeds amongst us judgmentalism and a lack of patience and kindness with others. Because the truth is, oftentimes we do love others the way we've treated ourselves. Even more so, I mean, you've read that verse a million times. Even more so, how is it that one loves God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? I mean, really, what does that even mean? How, there's different ways to love God? And how do I do that? And so that's what is at the heart of this series called Lost. And this is why I wanted to start it in the new year. Kind of a January thing for me. Because if these four things are really crucial to life itself, your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength... There's a couple profound questions that need be asked. Have you lost them? Have you lost your heart? Have you lost your strength? Have you lost your mind? <laughs> At heart, this series is really about life. About life. That's why I placed it at the beginning of the year, because if we can master these four things, if we can, again, re refine our heart and our soul and our mind and strength, then maybe, maybe, just maybe, all the things that Jesus said was true about life in this world would be possible for us in the here and in the now. I was at um, wrestling, a wrestling match yesterday. Truth is, I was at three wrestling matches yesterday. Kid went 3-0, oh, pinned three kids, but that's neither for here or there. Um, <laughs> 
Chip off the old block, I always like to say. <laughs> I would have been seeing nothing but delights had I wrestled in my day. Anyway, I was at, uh, so I was kind of entombed, and if you go to, a, if you go to, spend a lot of time during wrestling season, you're like entombed in a brick fortress in there. And uh, a lot of cell signals don't get in. Beth, you remember this, right? And so you, it's kind of nice because, uh, you know, the pastor of a fairly big church, and I have a fairly big family, and, you know, the phone rings a lot. And so when I'm kind of entombed in that, 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 that concrete coffin, it's not too bad. But then when you get out, you know, if you, if you, uh, if you have a phone that rings a lot, when you get out, ba-doom, 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 you know, as I'm getting in my car. And there was a couple messages. I was going through them when I got in the car. There was a couple messages um, from a friend of mine. He's, he goes to our church, and he was calling me because his brother, his older brother, his big brother, had died. Just died Saturday, I think. He had just gotten the call the night before, and he, he had left me a message, and he said, I just want to talk to you about this. I'm really struggling. He said his brother had played a big role in his life when he was younger. His brother was significantly older than he was, um, and because of the age difference, he was almost a little bit like a father figure. They hadn't been all that close over the last bunch of years, but there was something about this news that he was having a hard time just processing. And it was almost like he said, hey, can you just, we just talk about this. So I, I, when I got home, I called him and I spent some time talking and praying with him on the phone last night. And he had this, this was his statement. It said something, he said something like, John, I've had a lot of people pass away in my life, but there's something about this person, this, this one death, this loss. It's messing with my head. I'm not, it's not, it's different than the other times people have died. My brother was a good man. He, he was a good dad. He lived a good life. He had a good family. And to, yesterday he was here, and suddenly today he's not. And it just, there's something wrong. It doesn't seem right. I was talking with him about it, and it made a lot of sense to me, the way he was describing it. Because I remember having, only one time in my life so far, a very vivid, almost profound um, thing happened to me with a loss I experienced. I've only had it one other, uh, one time. It, to, to me, the closest person I've ever lost in my life was my grandmother. Loved my grandmother tremendously. My family, uh, she was a true matriarch. My grandmother wasn't successful by any of the world's standards. She never owned a house. She never had a career. She spent literally, uh, up until her dying moment, she spent taking care of my aunt who had ter terrible cerebral palsy. Um, she actually passed away in the bathroom taking care of my aunt. Um, she was a good woman. Everywhere I went with her, from the time I was a little boy till I was in my 20s, she lived by a 7-Eleven. And every time we'd go into 7-Eleven, all the women would tell me about my grandmother. Oh, my gosh, this is your grandmother? Well, let me tell you about this woman. Uh, one of the stories that kind of sums her up best was when, when she was walking. My aunt was very feeble. She couldn't really walk much. And she was walking her down the streets of Newark um, one day. And she had just cashed my grandfather's paycheck. Um, he was a blue-collar worker, and, you know, they lived paycheck to paycheck, and so she had just gone to the bank and cashed, and she had all the cash in her pocket. And as she was walking my aunt down the streets of Newark, a mugger came up and grabbed her purse and took all of the money. And uh, the police happened to be right there on the spot, so they started chasing the guy down the street. And here's my grandmother trying to help my aunt up, and he, she's yelling at the cop, don't shoot him, don't shoot him. And that was just this woman's heart. And, and so I loved her very deeply, and she passed away. And I remember I was going to her funeral. I could tell you exactly where I was. If, you, if you're familiar with the Hackettstown area, I was right kind of at that, that, that area where all the roads come together. There are 46 and Main Street. David's Country Inn is there. There's a couple gas stations. I was right at that intersection. And I was driving to her funeral. And I had this thing come over me where suddenly it was like somebody lifted a curtain on the world. And everything that I thought made sense didn't make sense anymore. <laughs> 
and I saw things in a way I had never seen them before. It was like somebody said, this is really what life is like and about. Do you see it? And I saw it, and this is what my friend was talking about last night. He's going, I said, something, it's, it, it's like something's changed. Something, I, I've seen things differently. I don't know how to process it. And that was my moment on that street in Hackettstown. Suddenly this person that I loved and cared about more than anything else was gone. And it was as if God said, look, I want to show you something. Look, all that you're giving yourself to, all that you've established as priority in your life, do you see there's something different, there's something, there's something new, there's something better? You ever have a moment like that? I hope you do. It was like the curtain that on what I perceive as reality was pulled back and I saw things for the way they were. It was like Dorothy finding out, looking behind the curtain and seeing who Oz really was. I remember how vividly, because of, the, of this loss and because of what I had seen, I was going to, in that moment, I thought to myself, boy, I, this has to impact the way I live. This has to impact what I'm going to do with my life and the way I treat people and how I love my wife and, and the way I'm going to spend time with my kids and, and how I'm going to prioritize God. I'd gotten behind the curtain. I realized how everything silly things were. But now I understood it was going to be different. But then, and I can feel this, I can still feel it in my soul, then somehow, it was literally about over 48 hours, maybe 72, it was this I could feel in my soul that some, the blinds were slowly coming down. And I started breathing in the same kind of old intoxicated air that I always had. And it was gone. I had to get back to the real world. Oz was Oz again. The house payment had to be made. I mean, there were corporate ladders to climb. There were achievements that had to be, that had to be made. There was a retirement to save for. It was for me that week, it was like I had been in a moment, it was like I had been born again. It was like in a moment I had become alive for a second. I saw things differently. In a way, I think the Bible describes this. The Bible would say, for a second, John, you didn't see with your eyes. You saw with the eyes of your heart what the scripture prays that we would be able to see. Things were going to be different for me, but the shade closed. See, life is hard. It has a way of closing the shades on us. It has a way of making you lose your heart. Things don't go as you seem. Jobs are lost. Wars break out. Spouses cheat. Kids, kids become promise, uh, prodigals. Promises get broken, bad diagnoses come, people, good people, young people, even some of our own people long before their time pass. As followers of God, we can get ourselves into places of confusion and we start to think that when these things are happening, well, either God is holding out on us, he's not coming through with us, he's not keeping up his end of the bargain, or we start to think maybe we're the problem, maybe I haven't been good enough, maybe I haven't prayed enough, maybe I didn't give enough money. That's the conclusions we draw. But what if? What if neither of those was true? What if there was something profound going on? And if you could just see behind the curtain, you might get it for a minute. What if I had, what if you and I had eyes to see things differently, to understand differently? What if we could be woken up in a sense from this slumber that we find ourselves in? See, Jesus 
When he comes on the scene, he goes into the temple, and he starts his ministry, and he starts his ministry with a proclamation. And he says, you want to know why I'm here? One of the reasons is to recover sight for the blind. And he didn't just mean physical blindness. He says, I come so that you might be able to see things right again. Why did Jesus come? What was the reason? Was it to forgive you? Of course it was. Was it to die for your sins on a cross? Yes, it was. But those are partial answers. Jesus, by his own words, came that you might have life. That you might live. Not just eternally, but now. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. The psalmist says, you may know to me the path of life. John says, in him was life. Jesus says, you refuse to come to me to have life. In the book of Acts, they send the disciples out and they say, go tell them about this life. But if it's so true, why does it escape us so much? If you were here last week, I mean, it was just that great story about God takes Israel out and he's bringing them to the promised land and he marches them all across the desert and through the Red Seas and, and, and they, they go on about a 50-day journey, maybe 45, and they get to about 11 days from the promised land and they start to camp at Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb was not the promised land. Mount Horeb was a place that God had taken them. He was going to teach them lessons there and he was giving them the promised land, but they camped at Mount Horeb because they got comfortable and they got scared. And you know what happened? They all died, just about every one of them. They never got to the promised land. St. Arrhenius, he was a second century church founder, he said this, the glory of God, the glory of God is man fully alive. So I want to give you three truths as we start. See, I've never done a series like this. I have no idea. Usually when I start a series, I'm like, okay, here's, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to get there. Here's what we're trying to achieve. Here's what we're going to teach. And so this is the first series I've ever gone into and said, I have no idea where this is going, other than uh, I think there's some hard things that we need to discuss that we don't talk a lot about. Um, and so I'm not sure where this is going. By the end of this, you may go, I'm not sure where this is going either. But uh, I, I think we're going to talk about some things here that we don't talk about often. And if we get them, it might explain a lot. So I'm going to give you three eternal truths as we set out to refine the things that have been taken from us, our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Truth number one, we talked about it on Christmas Eve. Truth number one is this. All that you see is not all that there is. Now, if you're here this morning, you likely believe that at one level or another. The truth is almost everybody who's ever believed, right theology or not, has believed that all that they see is not all that there is. This is why there are temples to unknown gods all over antiquity. The scripture says, and it's not promised just to believers, it's, it's a human characteristic. You were given a heart that has an eternity thing going on in it. Your dog does not dwell on his purpose in life. Your dog does not wonder what's going to happen when he dies. You do. Because the scripture says, God has set eternity in your hearts. All that you see is not all that's going on. If you're open to the fact that you're here this morning because you believe that a God that you do not see... You do not hear and you cannot touch. If you're here because you still believe that's true, or at least might be, then you have to be open to one other thing. Just, just walk with me through this. If you're open to that, I would ask you to be open to one more thing, that there might be a lot of things going on in the spiritual realm that you do not see, feel, or understand. There might be a lot of things going on in the spiritual realm right around you that you do not see, feel, or understand. 
John Eldridge does a great job. He points this out. He says that every story that's ever been written, every one of our great stories, the ones we remember, the ones that transcend time, I just saw the movie Joy this week, Joy does this, all of them in one sense are gospel stories, and they all start with one premise that contains three eternal truths. And the first is that things are not what they seem. There is a lot more going on than meets the eye, much more. One thing that helps, Eric, much more. One thing that helps, one thing that helps me understand this, Steve Jobs, Tim was up, he, he did a good job on his first sermon a couple weeks ago, and Steve talked, or Tim talked about the lies the internet passes around, and one of the lies that was going around about Steve Jobs a couple weeks ago, or it's probably going around for a while, but we all saw it a few weeks ago maybe, was that he gave this, you know, he pontificated on the meaning of life right before his di he died, and his final words were about how he lived for the wrong things, and he shouldn't have spent all the time at work, and he should have spent time with things that mattered, his family, his kids. Steve Jobs never said any of that. That was made up. Somebody stuck Steve Jobs' name on it, and it made its way around the Internet. Do you know what Steve Jobs' actual last words were? I said, you know. <laughs> it's fascinating. Steve Jobs, who, you know, I didn't, obviously I didn't know Steve Jobs, but Steve Jobs has a rough reputation, right? He's kind of a cutthroat guy, a businessman, a man that grabbed the world by the tail and had everything. Uh, his sister wrote this article. It was either in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, I think. She was in the room when Steve Jobs died. And she said, Steve Jobs sat up in his bed and proclaimed, she wrote it in capital letters, three things as he was passing. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. You see, all that you see is not all that there is. You know the scriptures, right? Or excuse me, you know the stories, right? Well, these are the stories of our ages. A tornado sets Dorothy down. She walks out of her farmhouse and she finds herself in a strange new land. A land of munchkins and fairies and witches. The land is Oz. And think about how brilliant the filmmakers were to wait to introduce color right to then. Up until then, her story is black and white. That resonate when everybody ever live in a black and white world when there's a color world available to you? Up until then, her story is black and white. But when she steps out of the house, the screen explodes in color. And she whispers to her little friend, Toto, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. And I'm telling you, there was that moment on that street in front of David's Country Inn as I was going to my grandmother's funeral where there was just this moment where the shade come up and I had this experience in my chest that said, John, you're not in Hackettstown anymore. I don't think uh, there's a movie that explains this better. You see it in every great movie, okay? You'll see these principles because this is the gospel story and it is our story and we work it into everything even if we don't know or understand the gospel. No movie explained this better than the movie The Matrix, which is getting a little long in the tooth now. But uh, if you haven't seen it, it's a fascinating look behind the curtain. In the movie The Matrix, that's what's referred to as what's running in the background of our lives. It's two characters. There's Morpheus uh, and Neo. And there's this scene where Morpheus, who understands what's going on, is explaining this truth to Neo. A truth they refer to as The Matrix. All that you see... Neo, he's essentially telling him, is not all that there is. This is what he says. Morpheus says to Neo, let me tell you why you're here. They're having this meeting. He says, you're here. Oh, this is so good. So good. I just, I read this. I'm like, yeah. He goes, you're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life. That there's something wrong with the world. 
You don't know what it is, but it's there. It's like a splinter in your mind. It's driving you mad. It's this feeling that you, you, you it's, this, it's this feeling that has brought you to me. Do you know what I'm talking about? This is how the scene plays out. Let me, let me show it to you. Do you want to know what it is? The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? That you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. <sighs> Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Offering is the truth, nothing more. Follow me. How good is that? Does that resonate in anybody's heart where you're like, yeah, that's it, man. There's like something going on and I feel like it's there, but I can't quite touch it and I'm not really sure, but I know. This is why Paul says, Paul's, trying, Paul's talking to the church. He goes, I want you to understand something. He's, first of all, this is through the scriptures. It's not just, it's, it's not just in movies. It, you see it when Israel settles for the mountain instead of going to the promised land. You see it when Jesus walks in, into, into the temple and there's a man sitting by the pool, the pool of healing, and he's been sitting there for decades. And Jesus looks at him and goes, do you want to be healed? Or do you just want to sit on the outside? Do you want to live at the side of the pool? Here's what Paul says. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, therefore we don't lose heart. Outwardly we're wasting away, but inwardly we're being renewed for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us eternal glory that outweighs all of this. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Do you hear, church? There is another thing going on. All that you see is not all that there is. What is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. So as we start to look for our hearts, our soul, our mind, and our strength, please understand, there is something going on here. Second thing. Second eternal truth. Second truth you see in every story, every great story that's ever been written. 
Number one, all that you see is not all that there is. And number two, there is a war going on. And it is a war for your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. Again, Paul to the church in Ephesus says, Wake up, O sleeper. Check this out. Or maybe not. No, that's not it. Ephesians 5.14, Nance. That's my bad, not giving her the reference. This is why it said, Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. You and I do not occupy neutral territory. The message translated it this way. Watch your step, use your head, make the most of every chance you get. These are desperate times. Many of you have read C.S. Lewis's works and seen the movies on Narnia. That's this story. That's your story. C.S. Lewis, in his greatest work, Mere Christianity, said this. He said, one of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was that it talks so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who was held to be the power behind death and disease and sin. He said, the difference is that Christianity thinks that this dark power was created by God and was good when he was created and went wrong. Christianity agrees the universe is at war. You were born into a cosmic battle. And what is at risk is your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. You do not occupy neutral territory. You see, life is hard. Things do go wrong. Not because God is not coming through for you. Not because you haven't been good enough or prayed enough. Would you be open to the possibility that maybe life is not turning out for you the way you thought it would because you were born into not a world at peace, but into an epic battle for the ages, and it rages all around you. Now, we don't, you know, can I be honest? We don't talk about this in church a lot. I have some ideas on why we don't. I mean, one is it's not easy to preach. Two is you're like, well, I'm going to bring my friend to church, and then my pastor goes on some rant about, like, you know, Angels and demons and... I mean, I get all that, okay? But here, you know, this is the truth. This is what's going on. And it has real practical implications for you. I mean, there's nothing more practical than actually understanding what's going on around you, even in you, has to do with a world at war. The second thing is the reason that sometimes we don't talk about it, I don't talk about it, is because then people run around blaming everything on spiritual warfare. Right? The devil made me do it. I stubbed my toe. Satan's out for me. Uh, you know, that can become silly, too. You know, we love John, right? Oh, John 3, 16. Love it. Everybody's got a crocheted on the wall at home. But John also said this. 1 John 5, 19, Nance. We know that we are children of God. Like that part. How about this one? And the whole world is under control of the evil one. Ooh. One writer said this, Christianity isn't a religion about going to Sunday school or potluck suppers or being nice or holding car washes or sending secondhand clothes off to Mexico. As good as those things might be, this is a world at war. Sometimes large and immensely something large and immensely dangerous is unfolding all around us. We're caught up in it, and above all, we doubt we've been given a key role to play. Now, you might think that's too dramatic. 
But consider the story that the prophet Daniel tells. I never caught this before. This is absolutely fascinating. Many of you know the story of Daniel. He gets himself into this place where he's trying to understand what God is doing. There's a lot of dreams and prophecies and all the rest. Daniel finds himself troubled and oppressed, and he, he, he can't figure out what to do, so he sets out to find an answer because there's big things going on. And for three weeks, he fasts and he prays. No result. Now, if you and I were caught up in this big thing and you and I spent weeks fasting and praying and nothing happened, what would we conclude? Well, we would probably go down the same two paths. Either I'm blowing it or God is holding out on me. We might try confessing every sin and petty offense in hopes of opening up new lines of communication with God. Daniel could have withdrawn into like some disappointed resignation. He could have dropped the fast. He could have turned on the television, popped open a beer, did something to self-medicate. In an effort to hang on to his faith, he could have embraced this difficulty as just part of God's will for his life. He might have gone to the bookstore and bought a book, The Silence of God. That's what we do, right? Because either God's not coming through with me and I need to understand it, or I've screwed up. But what if there's another possibility? What if he was dead wrong? Because on the 21st day, three weeks in, an angel shows up, out of breath with an apology. Daniel chapter 10, verses 12 to 14. This is what the angel says to Daniel. Daniel, relax. Don't be afraid. From the moment you started to humble yourself to receive understanding, your prayer was heard. I set out three weeks ago to come to you, but I was waylaid, I like that term, I was waylaid by the angel, the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Okay, this is a demonic force. I was waylaid by the angel, the prince of the kingdom of the Persia, and I was delayed for three weeks. But then Michael, one of the chief angel princes, intervened to help me. I left him there with the prince of the kingdom of Persia. There's a battle going on there. And now I'm here. I got out. I'm here to help you understand what's going to happen to your people. Do you understand, church, that there is more going on than you see and that you were born into a world at war and what is at risk is your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength? Paul tried to help us understand it when he wrote, remember, guys, remember your battle isn't against each other. Your battle isn't against your wife or your husband or your kid or your boss. It's not even against ISIS, really. He said our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. I know this is tough, but this is the truth. And here's what the battle is for, maybe more than anything else. The battle is for your heart. In so many ways, the story of our lives is the story of people who have had a long and brutal assault on their heart by one who would love nothing better than to take you out by giving you a stone-cold, dead heart. You know this. The scripture says more about the heart. Watch. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at thee. Where your treasure is, there your. Trust in the Lord with all of your. You, your, your word I have treasured in my, for the eyes of the Lord rage throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. A man's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs the heart. What, is, what, what does the scripture say? Jesus says, these people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It's the heart that matters. Above all else, the scripture says, 
Guard your heart because everything you do flows from it. You see, this is why our marriages grow cold. We can love each other in other ways. I can love my wife with my, my mind and my strength. I can buy her every, flowers every week. I can keep date nights on Tuesday night. I can write her poems. I can do the laundry. I mean, I don't do any of that stuff, right? But I could. <laughs> I could. But here's what I know. It's not an excuse for not doing any of those things. Here's what I know. At the end of the day, if I do all of those things and my wife does not feel that she's connected to my heart, it doesn't matter. The heart is what matters. This is why it's so hard for us to live in deep communion and relationship with each other because our hearts are messed up. We got bad hearts. This is why our work lives grow cold. It's why you work for 20 years and suddenly you quit and somebody goes, why? And you just say, well, my heart wasn't in it anymore. This is why we get fearful and turn back. This is why we don't have the hard conversations with our kids. This is why we don't tell people that we love them, we love them, because we get heart problems. There's a battle that's raging all around, for you, around you. Your adversary would like nothing more than for you to lose heart. To just stay at the mountain of comfort and safety and security and to live long, dull, boring, unfulfilling lives, saving for retirement so you can do nothing. Do you understand how stupid that is? And that's our goal. What happened to us? I'm going to save a lot of money so I can do nothing. How that makes no sense. But we're all doing it. You took the blue pill. Well, I gotta watch you with that one. That's a bad. <laughs> It's a bad analogy. <laughs> Look, our hearts get taken out, man. Our dreams die. Uh, our loves die. Our passions die because we lose our heart. Listen to how important this is, church. Paul drives it home. He says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, we push that one, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Paul says, it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. Where does saving faith come from? The heart. One writer said this, this raises a troubling reality for all of us. You do not belong to God. You are not a Christian at all until you engage your heart. Until you believe with your heart. Jesus said the same thing in a frustrating moment. With his own people, he cries out. He says, for this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears. They've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes. They might hear with their ears. They might understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Have you lost your heart? Have you just settled? Are you aware that there might be something more, but you're just not sure what it is? When the scripture talks about your heart, it's talking about the center of who you are, the very core of humanity, the innermost part of the human personality, the real self. Oswald Chambers said, the use of the Bible term heart is best understood by simply saying me. Last of the three truths. All that you see is not all that there is. There is a war going on, and it is for your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And by the way, as you either prevail or get taken out, so goes your spouse and your kids and your family and our church and your job. It matters. Here's the last one. You have a role to play in this, a glorious role. 
You weren't just created to call and called to exist or to survive. You have a role to play in an epic battle for your heart and for your life. But not just yours, for the hearts and the lives of people you love, for the hearts and the wives of lives of your spouse, your kids, our church, this town, our world. And when you and I don't realize that, it all dies. It might still be breathing, but there's no life. When you don't realize who you are and what you were created to be, when you choose the blue pill instead of the red pill, when you just go back to sleep, evil wins. When we begin to believe that your life is just about accomplishment and comfort and accumulation, when we sell our hearts out cheap on the street, evil wins and death comes and that is not what you were meant to be. So I'm going to ask the band. You guys can come up. So I don't know where this is going, but I'm just going to, we're going to walk through this and try to figure this out because there is something going on, the Bible says, and it's not anything you can really see clearly, but I know some of you might now, you might, you might just go, I don't sense that at all, but there's some of you I know, and you should email me and let me know so I feel like I'm not talking to a vacuum and say, I felt that. I know there's something more going on. I can't place my finger on it all the time, but there is something more going on. And maybe the things that are going wrong in your life, in your home, in your job, in your heart, in your mind, maybe they're not all because you weren't good enough. Maybe they're all be not because God isn't coming through. Maybe it's because there is something going on in the spiritual realm and there is a war raging and you are right in the middle of it. Next week we're going to come together and we're going to talk about how do you get your heart back? I'll close with this. There's a verse that we love to quote I had somebody quote this verse to me once for the reason they were cheating on their wife. They said, uh, Jesus came so that I might have life and have it to the full. But you know what we don't show at the beginning of that verse? It's there for a reason. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that you might have life and that you might have it to the full. Ezekiel, when he promised that Jesus was coming, said this. This is what he would do. He says, he'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll take out your old, stony, stubborn heart, and I will give you a tender, responsive heart. Men of Hills, wake up, O oh sleeper. There is more going on than you can imagine. Tim's put together a song here that we're going to close, and we're going to sing about our hearts together. Stand, would you?